Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time. I'm Jan Bartlett and I'll be with you until 6 this evening. And it's Listen Sponsor Drive. Keeping 3CR on air needs listeners to make a commitment to become a financial sponsor. You can either join online, 3cr.org.au, or by phoning 94198377. We hope you can continue to listen to the program such as this, and you'll hear more about this as the program goes along. Today, Dr. Kevin Bray talks about his journey supporting Palestine and the situation facing Palestinians today under the far-right Netanyahu regime. Dr. Tim Anderson explaining what the situation is for the people in the earthquake area of Syria. Peace activist Kathy Kelly and the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal and activities in many parts of the US today. Bob Phelps with his monthly expose of genetic engineering practices and Dr. Alison Bronowski, anniversary of the war in the Gulf and war powers challenges. But we'll begin with Mr. Kevin Healy and find out how his week has gone. A week, Jane, listener, when in a cruel, economically irresponsible reaction to the down-to-earth, understand-struggle bankers at the Reserve Losses Bank increasing the cash rate yet again, big economic guru Jim Chalmers Capital asked the True Blue Aussie Competition and Consumer Commission to investigate the lag between rate rises for borrowers and for depositors. We can tell him. Roughly three and a half minutes in the first case, an eternity in the second. Uh, yes, we asked important bank supremo Charles Bloated, how is it that you can raise borrowing rates within minutes but can't seem to calculate how to increase rates for depositors? It's a question, Charles explained, of incomings and outgoings. Clearly, if we can increase incomings without increasing outgoings, that is good for all of us. All of us? But, but, but what about the depositors? I said all of us. Not that we'd mention the word greed when it comes to our great banking institutions or any practitioner of the greatest little economic order of them all for that matter, like Mantle, real name, mentioned them last week, the True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review report over ripping off workers big time 20 years using an expired agreement, then four executives agreeing to a new agreement that maintained abolishing all penalty rates, forcing the Capitalist Review to editorialise over the urgent need to smash the power of evil unions. Well, the fair work True Blue Aussie no longer work choices just looks like it con mission this week, referred Mantle's human relations supremo, Darren Latham, to the federal, sorry, police, for allegedly lying about the agreement deliberately misleading the commission. Mantle, which employs about 700 ripped-off workers and runs Hot Wok Food Makers, James Squire Brewhouses and the Pig and Whistle pub chain, said Latham is a man of the utmost integrity and has done nothing wrong. It is extraordinary 
that the union and others are attacking a worker for simply doing his job. Sure, just doing his job of ripping off other workers. Shame union and others. Although we might have thought Mantle would be better off keeping its mouth shut. In his relentless campaign to improve the lot of workers to whom he devotes his every minute, the aforementioned Jim Chalmers Capital published an essay calling for capitalism with a human face, one of the clearest examples of an oxymoron we've heard for a long, long time, prompting one capitalist newspaper headline, Chalmers Capital takes economics cue from left-winger. Economic academic Professor Mariana Mazzucato, who advocates a fairer society, Jim's key catchphrase, indicating calling for a fairer society is left-wing, and in the context of its use, left-wing is dangerous, treacherous, even conceding the impossible that the greatest little economic order of them all, dog-eat-dog, is capable of fairness. Imagine what they'd say of Matsukato if she actually called for an end to capitalism. It's not worth thinking about. And in response, in its relentless search for fairness, the Business Profits Council of Trublawazi called on Jim and the Socialists' direct quote to unleash the private sector. A well-run market economy, its supremo Jennifer Worcester cuts the wages said unnecessarily, has delivered almost three decades of uninterrupted growth and prosperity. Yes, given the impact of, well, much more than three decades of market forces, the history of the greatest economic order, the poverty-stricken, the homeless, evil unions with both hands tied behind their backs, workers unable to survive as the costs of living soar, an endless litany of the great advantages of market forces, the mind can but boggle at the thought that all that was achieved without the private sector being unleashed. Imagine the benefits of it being fully unleashed. Things will be even better. But the threat runs far deeper than the concerns Jennifer has expressed. Far, far deeper. Because if we thought left-wing, the oxymoronic capital fairness, was a threat, thanks to a giant mind thinker, Ron Fox of Maroubra, we have been warned it's far, far, far worse. Ron alerted us through the letter pages of the capitalist media, the good media, for those with any knowledge or recall of history, there would in Jim Chalmers' capitals manifesto be resounding and alarming echoes of... I hope you're sitting down, listener. If not, please sit down. You'll need to. Alarming echoes of Marx and Engels. <laughs> Thank goodness for Ron's perspicacity and obvious political intelligence, because don't know about you, listener, but I, for one, would never have tipped Jim as the dangerous Marxist he obviously is, especially when he covers his evil, long-haired commie tracks by declaring capitalism, market forces, the caring business class, a key element of the fairness he talks about. Latest speculation on nuclear subs for Trublawazi is they should be in the water, or well under it, in about 30 years, prompting our Minister for Offence and train-killing Richard Malls, the bad guys, to send an urgent request to evil China, 
uh, he urged. <coughs> uh, I wonder if you could refrain from doing anything to upset our very, very, very close friend, the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world for, say, 30 years, give or take, so, so we can fully enjoy the toys for the boys' fun. Making spending trillions with the U.S. of merchants of death such a smart use of our public money, we're told is so tight when people ask for things that don't kill people. Bit of a nuclear problem in Western Troublawazi as a radioactive cesium capsule disappeared off a truck. The search by Rio Tato the planet restricted to most of the state. Putting aside the fact that we learned the great resource BMOS used these lethal capsules as part of their mining operations, we also noted advocates for a nuclear waste dump on indigenous land in South Troublawazi argue that this sort of thing couldn't possibly happen. Uh, and it can't. Newkett Ian McFarton farted. Uh, but Ian, it did. But only because it uh, fell off the truck. Uh, clearly, if it hadn't fallen off the truck, it uh, it wouldn't have uh, fallen off the truck. Good point. Poor Ian, a former coalition minister for the big polluters who now works for the big polluters, and therefore argues that we must extract and use more and more gas as a transition to more and more gas, as a transition from coal, which we also must use more and more to have something from which to transition, got a bit confused again this week, arguing that Troublawazi must also adopt nuclear reactors. You can run on gas for longer, but uh, that means you are just simply substituting gas for coal. If you are going to try to get to zero emissions, then nuclear is obviously uh, part of the answer, uh, obviously. And it would be up and running at about the same time as the nuclear subs, and at roughly the same inconsequential cost. Uh, but hang on, Ian, you're not suggesting that gas and coal are both a problem, are you, or, or that there is such a thing as climate change? Uh, I'd need to read back what I, uh, what I uh, meant to say, um, uh, that uh, 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 Ian Frankie's consistent inconsistency and confusion accusing the socialists of hiding behind the too expensive excuse for opposing nuclear energy uh, for decades, uh, but I think it masks their political ideology. If we'd said the same thing about wind and solar, it never would have uh, been developed. Uh, but Ian, you did say the same thing, and you're still saying the same things. Uh, uh, I meant to, uh, I, I, well, I'm, right, we'll leave Ian um, ahhing. There was speculation on whether the artificial intelligence chat box could write a better parliamentary speech than the parliamentarians themselves. No idea, but one thing is certain, uh, they couldn't do any worse. Often after a heavy night on the booze, people, well this is purely hearsay of course, have a bit of trouble remembering other than that awful feeling, uh, I think I did something terrible. Well, a Korean study suggests up to three standard drinks a day may reduce our risk of dementia. And it's understandable. We'd never forget to have our three drinks a day. Not dementia, but inbreeding. The Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin breathlessly reported that the first stance in His Most Gracious Majesty's home country depicting King Big Ears III are about to be released with the vital information that he is facing left 
as all British monarchs have done on stamps since the penny black. And I thought, that's the nearest he's ever going to get to go, go to the left. On the filthy rich, not suggesting for a moment there's a law for the rich and a law for the poor, but you recall or not recall, it's got to be one of them, that last week we mentioned an Aussie tennis player right up there with Novaks in the totally unlikable department, who hobbled into a different court on crutches and pleaded guilty to a domestic violence charge, but walked or, well, hobbled free with no conviction while a 23-year-old Wangaratta bloke facing court for threatening bank staff after discovering $105 had been deducted without his knowledge, not that we condone taking bank robbery out on the rank-and-file workers, but he told the court he was working with a behavioural specialist. I'm a changed man, he said. Result? He was convicted and fined $600, meaning he's now $705 worse off while a millionaire brat walks free, putting domestic violence in its place. Finally, just in case we might think there's a bit of inconsistency creeping into all this, our world was righted by our old mate in us, Will Cost the Workers, of the Troublewazzy Industry Profits Group, who informed the government there were emerging problems with the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill. We would urge the Minister to look at some of the details governing the practical operation of the multi-employer bargaining provisions that remain unclear and are obviously problematic. Ah, thank you, Innes. At least there are some constants in this world. Good afternoon. And more of Kevin Healy tomorrow morning at nine with his friends on City Limits. Are you a 3CR subscriber? We really need our listeners to subscribe to the station. It helps us remain financially independent and is an important part of our community governance. It's just $40 concession, $80 waived, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Become a 3CR subscriber today. 3CR Radical Radio. Did you know that women make up just 2% of tradies? AMWU Victoria wants to change that, but we need your help. Are you searching for a rewarding career with a high value skill set? It's time to consider becoming a tradeswoman. For more information, come to the Hume Women in STEM and Construction Careers and Jobs Expo on Wednesday the 1st of March to kickstart your career. Register at Eventbrite or visit amwu.org.au slash events underscore W-I-T. The Australian Manufacturing Workers Union Victoria is a 3CR supporter. Many Australians are committed to working towards justice for Palestinians in the midst of so much propaganda and support for Israel. I'd like to find out how and why that support began and its continuation to the present day. So today I'm speaking with Dr. Kevin Prey, who recently had a contribution published in Pearls and Irritations titled Netanyahu's Collective Punishment of Palestinians. Kevin, you're now retired from work in various areas. Can we start by looking at your career? I suppose in the end I did have a variety, but at university in WA, I had a science degree 
an honours degree in science with a major in physics. In the end, I came to Canberra to go to the ANU to do a PhD in nuclear physics. That was where I started. And I was an academic in Australia and Canada for a total, I don't know, eight or nine years or so. And then uh, I realised that the particular area of nuclear physics that I was interested in was losing its uh, currency and uh, interest to many people. And jobs were becoming harder and harder to find. And we were in Canberra. Um, my wife was a teacher. Our kids were at school here. Everybody was happy. In order to find another job, I joined the public service. So I became a public servant and uh, spent the next roughly 25 years in various Commonwealth government departments, uh, a whole range of them. The one I, where I spent most of my time was what was initially called the Department of Agriculture. And then during the Hawke year, when the Hawke government amalgamated a lot of departments, the one that's most easily understood for most people is when when trade and foreign affairs came together to the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade. But that happened across a whole range of departments, partly because the Hawke government decided that there were too many ministers in the cabinet, something like around 30 or 32 or something. He wanted to cut that back. One of the ideas of amalgamating with departments was that to sort of cut the number of cabinet ministers. So agriculture joined in with resources and energy and became the Department of Primary Industries and Energy. So I worked there for quite a long time. And then when the Howard government came along, they decided to split them off again. Sort of agriculture became agriculture, fisheries and forestry. And uh, the resources and energy people went off elsewhere. I stayed on the agriculture side, worked on a range of issues, eventually got more involved in international issues. I was a member of my department in teams of uh, Australian delegations to some of those early climate change meetings before what became known as the uh, Kyoto Protocol was agreed to in in Kyoto in uh, 1997, I think it was. I also worked on some international um, nuclear policy issues because Australia sold and still sells uranium to a whole range of countries. Part of that involves regular consultations with the countries that we have these agreements with under the broad umbrella of what are called nuclear safeguards agreements, and the idea being to make sure that Australian uranium doesn't end up being used for nuclear weapons. So that involves some international travel to places like Korea and Japan and Europe and uh, North America for those kind of nuclear policy consultations. But that was before the climate change stuff. And after the Kyoto Protocol was agreed to, I decided I'd spend enough time on climate change, so I switched and I ended up working the last few years of my professional life in international fisheries, which is actually how I ended up in Rome for six months, working on a special project in the fisheries area of the Food and Agriculture Organisation in Rome. And then I retired. But... As a child in Western Australia, I attended a church. It was a church, one of the Churches of Christ, and I'm still a member of Churches of Christ. That country church was pretty fundamentalist, and in those days, uh, we were taught that that the Jews were God's chosen people, and uh, they really couldn't do much that was wrong. 
my very early background in terms of Jews and, Palestine and Israel and so on, I, I don't think in those days, we didn't think about it or discuss in any way the Palestinians, whether they existed and uh, their lifestyle or their nature or anything like that. It wasn't until um, really after I retired that we had an opportunity, my wife and I, to join a team of people to go to northern Israel, to, to the Nazareth area, really to do some uh, really some support work. Our leader had been a surgeon, and as a young surgeon, had worked at a, at a hospital in Nazareth. And after that, from time to time, he and his wife would take teams of volunteers back to the hospital and he did some surgery. But the rest of us, we were there just to do some uh, maintenance, painting, cleaning, whatever, to help at the hospital. And we went as part of that group because it just seemed like an interesting thing to do. But there were so many of us, we actually split into three groups. And one of the groups, groups, the one that my wife and I were with for the first half of our business, we went to a little village called Ibelin, which is roughly between Nazareth and Haifa in that northern Israel part, to a school run by a Palestinian Melkite priest whose name is Elias Shakur. His father... In 1948, when uh, when Israel proclaimed itself as a new state, kicked out about three-quarters of a million Palestinians, his father was a farmer in that part of what was still then Palestine, was one who was kicked out. But being a Christian and peaceful, his reaction was he had the opportunity to come back. He found himself working as a labourer on his own farm, which by then was had been taken over by a Jewish family, and his son became a priest in a, in the Melkite Church, which is not being Catholic or a Greek Orthodox. So these things are a bit of a mystery to me. But I, the way I saw it, it was a church which was sort of like the Greek Orthodox Church, but but it owed its allegiance not to the Greek Church but to Rome. He had established a school starting, I think, with a kindergarten and then a primary school and eventually a high school and uh, and then even eventually a, a university affiliated with one or more universities in the US. We went there, again, to do some maintenance work. They just built a, a new, two new classrooms. They badly needed painting. Uh, there must have been about a dozen of us from this whole group who'd gone with this um, Australian surgeon and his wife and various others. A dozen of us went to this institutions, educational institution attached to this Melkite church under what was then Father Elias Shakur, who I think has subsequently became a bishop, to do some basic work. And in the course of doing that, I mean, he, Elias Shakur himself was Palestinian. A lot of his staff were, although it was open, the school was open to anyone who could want to come, whether they were Palestinian or Jewish or whatever. But I think the vast majority of the kids there were, were Palestinian. But in the course of being there, we started to meet some Palestinian people. And in particular, I remember one who was really from Janin, which is in the northernmost part of um, the West Bank. More about that later on, because the latest that I wrote in my paper about had to do with the fact that the Israelis had raided Janin and killed, I think it was nine or ten Palestinians. But anyway, this particular guy from Janin shouldn't have been in Berlin at this school because... He had no permit. 
from Israel to be there. So any time anybody sort of came, and it was an open campus, so people could drive their cars through and so on, which meant police could be there or whatever. Any time anybody turned up in the vicinity, who Palestinian guy from Janine thought just might happen to be looking for him or might stumble upon him, he would go and hide. And we got talking to him, and we started hearing some of his story about the way in which Palestinians are treated in Palestine and Israel. That sort of got my gut up enough to begin to get interested in this whole question of the conflict between Palestine and Israel. That happened in 2004, 2004-2005, was Christmas time. In fact, I remember very easily because it was the time of the, that uh, tsunami off the top end of Sumatra that killed hundreds of thousands of people. We left Australia on Boxing Day, and by the time we got to Israel, we discovered what had happened, and we were watching on television these terrible scenes from the tsunami area north of of Sumatra. So that's how I remember then. But then uh, in 2007, towards the end of 2007, I was able to return uh, as a member of a so-called church leaders group, partly sponsored by the... MCCA, the National Churches Council of Australia, and there must have been about a dozen of us, including the Anglican primate, the head of, of the Quakers, two people from the United Church, including a guy called Wigger Henderson, who was or had been the head of the uh, United Church for a while, and I was there, uh, and another woman, we were the Church of Christ representatives, and again, we met, this, this was a much more organised meeting, we were, we were based in Jerusalem, was organised by a group who call themselves the Interchurch Council, and uh, they organised quite an extensive program while we were there. So we, we met uh, local church leaders, uh, we visited a whole range of places, including Janine. Met the uh, the governor of the uh, Janine area, visited a, a village near there where Australian aid money had helped with a whole lot of uh, infrastructure. From standing on the roof of, of one of the houses, and we looked across a few paddocks, and we saw some big pipelines. And the, we were told these pipelines were Israeli pipelines that had been built, in effect, to, to take water from aquifers in the uh, West Bank and pump it back into Israel proper. So, in, in effect, the Israelis were stealing Palestinian water. And again, I mean, the overall effect on me of that visit was to reinforce this whole sense of the inequality that, that uh, characterises the whole situation between Palestine and Israel. And so having come back, um, I joined a couple of local organisations and have continued to be an activist as much as possible in various ways, trying to uh, at least alert people in Australia, alert the churches, but also politicians, our government and others to what's going on there, in some small way, we might persuade people that, um, you know, the Palestinian cause is one which ought to be taken on board and, and uh, followed through on Kevin, have you had a chance to go back since 2007? <laughs> I was refused entry. I, uh, in, in 2018, because of, uh, sort of my ongoing activism, not only mine, others too, uh, two of us here from Canberra, Gregor Henderson, the name I already mentioned, and me and some others, were invited by the Palestinians 
through, in this case, through Palestinian delegation or or what we tend to call a Palestinian embassy here in Canberra. It doesn't have formal embassy status because Australia doesn't recognise Palestine as a state. But anyway, we were invited to go to Ramallah in 2018 to a conference, an international conference on Jerusalem. It had to be paid for by, um, uh, by, the, by the Palestinians. I'm, I'm quite sure how, but they, they were going to pay for it. So we set off, and uh, by then, uh, Qatar Airlines were flying directly out of Canberra to uh, Doha, and then uh, in the, in another flight on to Jordan. We, we flew to Jordan. And the idea being that we would then enter Jerusalem at the border crossing, which is closest to Jordan, and go on up to this conference in Ramallah. But by the time we got to Jordan, we were told the Israelis had changed their mind and they weren't going to let us in. We were sitting there. I mean, my return flight wasn't going to be for another week or so. Uh, and so rather than just sit around doing things, some of us thought, well, let's go down, let's go down to the border and see whether... It really is the case in some of our cities. Sure, it was that no, they wouldn't have anything. In fact, they stamped our passport with a special um, symbol, which when we got back to Jordan, the Jordanian said to us, well, that, what that means is that they won't let you in for another five years at minimum. So, no, the third time I tried to get in, I couldn't. And I haven't been back because I'm, I'm, my thinking now is if I tried to go back, even over five years, and now virtually up, I might pay several thousand dollars to get there and then be told I can't get in. So it didn't seem like a particularly good idea. I'm speaking with Canberra resident Dr Kevin Bray about the situation in Palestine in the past and today. You must keep in touch with people that you've met over those years. What are you being told? The main thing one is told is that things are getting worse. And especially now that Netanyahu's got back in and, and in order to form a, a coalition government, he's uh, aligned himself with some really extreme right-wing parties. The, the net effect of that is, is that the effect, I think, the takeover by Israel of the West Bank, more and more settlers who are being uh, better and better armed uh, better and better supported by the Israeli defence forces are making life all the more miserable for the Palestinians. My own personal view is that the Israeli strategy is far from looking for any kind of a peace agreement leading to the so-called two-state solution that, that our government thinks is the way to go. Far from that ever happening, what the Israelis are really on about is to make life so miserable for the Palestinians that they'll leave. And then you do. One of the places we visited when I was there in 2007 and spent a few days there was Bethlehem, which is reportedly the birthplace of Jesus, and in the past had a very large Christian population, possibly even the majority of, of the Bethlehemites in the early days were Christian. But because Christian Palestinians tend to be the ones who are better educated and therefore more likely to be able to find jobs in, say, the United States, Canada, Australia, Europe, wherever, they tend to be the ones who, when life gets just so totally un- unbearable, are the ones who leave. And so Bethlehem, for example, now, I think is down to something like 50% Christians in Bethlehem. 
and getting back to the rest of the West Bank, that this is the sort of thing that's happening. People are leaving, they're being killed, they're being imprisoned, and now this new government, they are beginning to foreshadow the development of new laws, the effect of which would be to turn the West Bank into essentially a Jewish-Israeli place. Since the occupation in 1967, the West Bank, and Gaza for that matter, but particularly the West Bank, has fallen under a military illustration. So that whenever Palestinians do anything that the Israelis don't like, it's the Israeli military that decides their fate. They're taken to court. It's a military court they go to and so on. Now what's happening is that with this, this whole new approach, this new Netanyahu government, they have effect been to establish a two forms of administration for Jewish slash Israeli settlers who have moved into the West Bank. They will come under a civil administration with laws that uh, apply to them. But the Palestinians will continue to live under this military administration and be suffer, and suffer, if anything, even more so than they have in the past, so that uh, their houses will be demolished, their families will be affected by this collective punishment where if, if, if a member of a family does something the Israelis decide is wrong, then the whole family will be punished, deported or their house demolished or, or in some other way. That's why I say it tends to me, despite all the efforts that those who, who, who think the Palestinians ought to get a fair go, despite all those efforts, things, things at the moment are getting worse and worse. The reason for that, I think, is essentially that um, the international community taken as a whole either doesn't care or they're very pro-Israel for whatever reason or they're just uh, wanting to follow U.S. policies or for a, whole, for a variety of reasons. Nobody is really willing to take on the, on, on the Israelis on any of these issues, despite the fact that they are clear violators of international law. You know, this resolution after resolution passed by the General Assembly and a few passed by the um, Security Council, if the U.S. hasn't decided to veto them. Despite all of that, despite the deliberations of organisations like the UN Human Rights uh, Council and so on, and so the Israelis just free to go ahead and do what they like. And when we've got these double standards, when they talk about the, the Uyghur in China, they talk about a Russians' invasion of Ukraine, and yet they can allow Israel to treat the Palestinians like they do. And one person I spoke to the other day saying, they're after another 1948 to get rid of all the Palestinians. They wouldn't go so far as to say that publicly, but I think if you look at what they're doing, what their tactics are, or the way they're treating Palestinians, um, the way they're supporting, encouraging, and financially backing settlers, army and so on, standing by, I mean, the soldiers stand by while, while the settlers do things like rip up olive groves. All of those sort of things. Now, they've been doing that for a long, long time, but it just it seems to be getting worse and worse. So I think your characterisation of this is another 1948 is not too far off at least the tactical approach and, and the hoped-for end game so far as, as Israel is concerned. As it stands at the moment, there are 
tens of thousands of Palestinian refugees in uh, in Jordan, in Lebanon, and so on. Right, the fact that they were, quite early on after 1948, there was a resolution giving those Palestinians a right of return. That's never been taken seriously by Israel. Current sort of circumstances that will never happen. I was watching one or two of the old Q and A, looking for things that I might <laughs> might mention to you today. And I, one of those programs involved on the one hand, Dave uh, Shama, who was the Australian ambassador to Israel some time ago, and subsequently became a Liberal member of Parliament, I think, for Wentworth. But I have a feeling at the last election he got tipped out by Tilden. And the other one who was on that particular Q&A panel was a Egypt-slash-Palestinian woman called uh, Rad uh, abdul Fattah. She was talking about her father and how her father's house still exists. And she can go uh, relatively easily because she's got an Australian passport. In fact, I think she was born in Australia. But nevertheless, she has to get permission from Israel uh, she said in, uh, on this occasion she was told she would go for three days. She, on that particular program, described Israel as an apartheid state. In my paper, I mentioned uh, reports by Human Rights Watch and Amnesty and so on, who, on, on the basis of the research and studies that they've done, also characterise Israel as an, as an apartheid state. Life for Palestinians is unbearable. The thing that keeps me going, despite all of that, I suppose, is the fact that when I meet up with Palestinians, as I did, for example, in 2007, and, but also Palestinians here, is they still have some hope. They still have the hope that one day things will turn around. If they're willing to work on that basis, then I don't see why I should give up entirely. So despite all my pessimism, I do try to do what I can. Well, finally, Kevin, many people had hopes for when the ALP government or the ALP party got into power. There's not much joy now, is there? I did talk a little bit about that in my paper. I wanted the paper not only to talk about the terrible things that Netanyahu is doing, but the fact that he's that neither the US nor Australia nor, by and large, international community are doing anything that will, will make a difference. The ALP National Conference a few years ago passed a resolution which essentially said when they return to government, if there hasn't been any significant change in the situation in Palestine and Israel, they will recognise Palestine, the state of Palestine, and that will be a matter of priority for a new ALP government. They've been totally silent on that since they got in. I think one of the reasons for it is that uh, Mark Davis, the Attorney General in the Labor government, is an out-and-out Zionist. He will do everything he possibly can, at least it seems to me, to make sure that the ALP doesn't recognise Palestine. I suppose to be a little bit fair to the ALP, they have had lots of other important things on their plate at the beginning, including you know this whole question of the voice, which I strongly support. I, you know, I'm going to certainly vote yes for the voice, but uh, they nevertheless uh, have been totally silent on this. And, and at the same time... Uh, they have recognised the thing called the, the IHRA definition of anti-Semitism. The ALP uh, have decided that they don't like anti-Semitism, and who else does? But they think that particular definition is an appropriate definition. I know 
the Midgets Assembly in South Australia have done the same recently because some of my colleagues from an organisation in South Australia called Australian Friends of Palestine Association, AFOPA, they tried working very hard at the time that that was coming up in the South Australian Legislative Assembly, but it was passed anyways. So yes, there's, there seems to be a general sense in Australia that Israel is a democracy, that they're doing their best. We've got significant defence and other agreements uh, with them. Let's keep going, seems to be the general Australian way. Um, the other thing I could say is that Israel, in October of 2021, declared a whole bunch of Palestinian NGOs to be terrorist organisations. One of the effects of that is that DFAT decided that if that's the case, then the previous humanitarian assistance that one of the DFAT programs was providing in Gaza and, and in the West Bank to those kinds of organisations ought to stop. I and some colleagues tried to take that up with DFAT oh, a few months ago now, and the answer we got essentially was, well, that's what the Israelis are telling us. If it's true, then yes, these organisations are terrorists. Now, of course, the Israelis would take that. I mean, they, they declared them to be. For Australia to take the word of the Israelis as definitively deciding on what our attitude should be to humanitarian support for Palestinian organisations is just outrageous. There are a range of things which flow from the fact that Australia, in effect, despite the ALP's conference policy of recognising Palestine, the reality is Australia is doing nothing and continues in various ways to believe and support the Israeli story. Nevertheless, as you've said, Kevin, it doesn't stop people all over the world supporting Palestine. That's right. I don't know if it's true, but some of the stuff I read out of the US would suggest that even Jewish youth in the US are now far less inclined to, to sort of think Israel right or wrong. Whether in the longer term it will make a difference or not, I don't know. And I, I don't fully understand U.S. policy into, you know, vis-a-vis, say, Israel on the one hand and Iran on the other hand. Israel receives massive, uh, $4 billion a year support from, uh, from U.S. government for military purposes mainly, supporting Israel's very high-tech development of new weapons, and new drones, new this, new that. To what extent the U.S. is doing that because of Iran, I'm, I'm really not sure. Because on the other hand, the U.S., until Trump came along, were parties to that international agreement. It was designed to, uh, in effect, to work with Iran to ensure that Iran's uh, program of developing highly enriched uranium for possibly for nuclear weapons, that, that wouldn't go ahead. And uh, Trump pulled out of that. Most of the other international members, the European Union and some others, they're still members of it. I think the Biden administration had been looking at uh, getting back into it. Nothing specific has happened since. And in the meantime, you know, the latest problem in Iran with um, really going over whether or not a woman has the right to wear uh, or not particular prescribed uh, stuff on her head made the situation in Iran become much more complicated. So I don't know exactly where some real push will come to uh, pressure Israel. The one thing we haven't, I haven't talked about, 
this whole business of BDS, boycott, divestment, sanctions, of all the things that Israel is worried about, BDS is the greater one. If those of us who are supportive of peace in Palestine and, and, in, and in Israel, I mean, Israelis need peace too, boycotts, divestment and sanctions are one very powerful tool, as it was in South Africa. Uh, those of us who are working for peace ought to be encouraging much more than we are. But, of course, here in Australia, if you mention that to parliamentarians, even the Greens a few years ago wiped their hands of BDS, let alone uh, either Labor or, or the Coalition. Uh, even on something like that, which is a, which I, I think are the things is a, a powerful mechanism that may change things, even that is just an impossibility here in Australia at the moment. And many thanks to Dr. Kevin Bray. Three CR is Radical Radio. Through our on-air content and community structure, we promote real change for workers' rights, gender equality, environmental action, disability justice, and on racism and First Nations sovereignty. Do you want to be part of real radical change? We need you to subscribe. It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation, and $300 solidarity. Call 03-9419-8377. That's 9419-8377. Or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Conversations is a series of podcasts in which campaigners share their experiences and insights into activism, learning in movements, radical history and more. Produced by the Commons Social Change Library, it focuses on lessons learnt from involvement in First Nations, disability, AIDS, climate justice, wage theft, disaster recovery and other campaigns. To listen to the series, visit www.3cr.org.au slash acting up. Since the devastating earthquake in Turkey and Syria earlier this month, the focus, at least in Australia, of the damage and relief has been on Turkey with little or no news from Syria. I spoke yesterday with Dr Tim Anderson, who has travelled to Syria many times in recent years and represents the group Hands Off Syria. I asked Tim first to explain the region that has suffered the damage and devastation and who is in control of that area of Syria. Right, so the earthquake, the recent one um, earlier this month, is in northern Syria and southern Turkey. So there's a number of big cities in southern Turkey there, Iskandaran region. Historically, they were joined, but, you know, with colonizers after the colonial era, they, they got separated. In Syria, it's the Aleppo city itself and the countryside of Aleppo and also north Idlib, where the al-Qaeda occupation is still there with backing of the Turkish army. And then all across that part of south 
Western Turkey, basically. So you've got the Turkish government there, and then you've got the Syrian government-controlled areas and some of the occupied areas, which are still more or less protected, provided safe haven by the Turkish government. So they're the areas that have been affected. And on the Syrian side, all of the areas that are under the control of the Syrian government are blockaded by the U.S. and European Union um, so-called sanctions that have been in place for more than a decade now. And that's been the problem in getting any aid into that area, I mean. But America or whatever say that there is a clause that allows humanitarian aid to get through. Is that correct or not? Uh, yeah, partly correct. I mean, the US has always claimed they've got these exemptions, but the UN agencies themselves, the World Health Organization, are saying, no, the problem is you can say that you've exempted some sort of medicinal products, but then the problem is they're all still blocked in the banking system, you know. But what happened a few days ago was that the Biden administration announced what they call a general license. In other words, they've lifted their blockade specifically in relation to earthquake aid just for six months until August for Syria. Now, it remains to be seen um, what the problems are because you've got 10 years of the bank saying we can't function in these areas because the US Treasury will fine us. But there are now some possibilities, like, for example, the Syrian Red Crescent has a bank account in Beirut, which seems to be functioning, and the, the Arab Trade Union Federation, the Regional Trade Union Federation, is also got a bank account in Cairo, which is able to send money to Syria. So um, the Biden administration more or less has backed down pressure just a few days ago, and there is this general sort of exemption. that means people don't have to go begging to the U.S. Treasury saying, please, sir, can we you know, send some money to this organization in Syria? So some possibilities opened up. Of course, in that context, the NATO and European Union countries are still not really helping Syria at all. All of their aid for years has been going to the occupied areas and to the proxy groups, which is basically HTS, which used to be called Nusra, the Al-Qaeda group in Syria in northwest Idlib, and on the other side of things, but there's no real serious earthquake damage in the far northeast. That's the, the Kurdish separatists under the U.S. control. What's happened is that you have got a number of friendly countries that have been going into Syria, but not uh, like, for example, Venezuela, Iran, um, Russia, um, even India, Pakistan, a number, um, Armenia, a number of countries. But um, even Italy, Italy is the one European country that sent aid, sending aid through Lebanon into Syria. But otherwise, all of the European Union, NATO, US, are boycotting Syria. They don't, they've never wanted to help with reconstruction after the war, and they've been trying to punish the people for resisting their regime change operations. So there's a, there's a massive asymmetry between the Western aid that's going to Turkey and not going to Syria. But are their feet on the ground actually going into those areas to assist the people? Yes, there are. They're basically from Venezuela, from Russia, from Iran, um, from and and material aid from some other countries like India and China, for example. So the the, the eastern, if you like, the eastern block or the eastern the southern block are helping Syria at this stage, but the western block is doing everything it can to obstruct. Except that they've Biden has announced this. What do you call it? He calls it a general license. It's like a a suspension, a temporary suspension, just in relation to earthquake aid. And we're still not quite clear 
to what extent that works because, as we know, the US tries to control the whole world and uh, sometimes there are enormous complications um, dealing with these restrictions and whether they apply, whether they don't apply. Like, for example, there's some Syrian Australians in Sydney trying to send a couple of containers. That's going to take a while. It's not really emergency aid, but the transport company says, fine, so long as there aren't these sanctions from the US because then we're going to get hit with their fines from the US Treasury and so on. It's the same with the banks. The banks have, have, have blocked the whole range of credit cards and any sort of operations to do with Syria. And just because the Biden administration has announced a temporary lifting in relation to particular earthquake aid doesn't mean that all the banks are going to immediately open up. They're going to be, they, they are worried. They're, they're going to still be worried that the, you know, for example, the ANZ, the National Australia Bank, they've been fined millions of dollars in the past when the U.S. Treasury has found out that they've done transactions with Iran and Cuba, for example. You know, so it's the same with Syria. They all are living in fear of the big bully attacking them and imposing so-called fines on them, unilateral fines. So what you're saying, Tim, is it's not only finances coming through, but people are coming physically from other countries to try and save people's lives. Uh, yes, there, there have been some days ago, there have been rescuers, you know, dozens of rescuers, for example, from Venezuela, from Russia, from Iran. Um, Hezbollah in Lebanon has sent rescuers dozens at a time into northern Syria. So there are people there who have been trying to get people out of the rubble. And there have been, it's a very difficult situation when huge, this earthquake happened in the middle of the night. And so a lot of big buildings came down in the middle of the night. People were asleep. Really, uh, many tens of thousands of people have died and um, there's not a lot of hope for a lot of the missing people. But there have been some stories, for example, of little children, um, for example, being trapped under the rubble for three, four days, being rescued. So there have been some uh, little success stories in all this tragedy. You haven't seen any examples of the white helmets rescuing children? Yes, but all of that, the, the White Helmets and the Islamic Relief and the Mulham team, all of those groups that have been linked to supporting the sectarian Islamist groups in northwest Idlib, they've all been operating in that area. They were expelled from most of Syria. Uh, I mean, the Syrian government controls well over 90% of the population there. It's mainly northwest Idlib. Even in northeast, where there's the Kurdish separatists and the U.S., the Syrian state is still providing health services and education and a range of things there. All of the operations by those groups that are funded by the British and the, and the US, you know, front people for the Al-Qaeda groups, marketing themselves as heroes, are really crisis actors. And the only space they have left to operate is in uh, northwest Idlib and then also some parts of northern Aleppo where under... Turkish army protection, they're still operating. They're, they're limited areas where they are. But those limited areas are also hit, by the way. And the Syrian government, for example, has tried to send um, convoys of trucks with aid into northwest Idlib. And the problem that happened there was, because the situation is very difficult in that uh, there's about 1.1 million people in that al-Qaeda-operated north, northwest Idlib there, they're in very difficult circumstances. They're not getting help from Turkey, really, even though the Turkish army is there. The situation is rather chaotic. The Syrian government has 14 trucks in a convoy lined up at Sarakeb to go into that area. And the HTS, which is the, the current dominant al-Qaeda faction there, is demanding $10,000 fee for each truck to go in. And so there's been a, a standoff there at the moment.
because the Syrian government still accepts that it has responsibility for the occupied areas there, but the problem has been that people haven't been able to leave because these armed groups are, are demanding fees and these convoy of trucks trying to go in at the, right, right now at the moment, I said yesterday, fees are being demanded of them to enter those areas. Is it very different to the situation or the, the photos we see of southern Turkey where there are apartment blocks, say 12, 14 storeys high, which have collapsed? Is that different in Aleppo and those areas you've been talking about? No, the impact of the earthquake was very similar, very similar in both cases, basically. Sometimes you're looking at the video and it's not clear which part it's coming from, but because Aleppo is a city with a lot of those tall buildings, the same thing, there's been some dramatic collapses in the same sort of way there. And there's a big polemic in Turkey at the moment about um, building regulations, and I, I believe the Turkish government is now chasing a number of companies for you know substandard building, but that's all a little bit too late, and I'm not sure how, to what extent, you can really earthquake-proof buildings. I've heard about it in Japan, for example, but in this case, if there's serious opening up of the earth, there's no foundation that's going to deal with that. But on top of that, you've got the, the fact that both in southern Turkey and in, in Syria, you've got these buildings that are probably built with substandard safety measures. Have you been in contact with many of the people in... Syria to find out how they're feeling at the moment. They mightn't be in that area or near that area, but it must be affecting the whole of the country. Oh, yeah, there's, there are plenty of um, families that are, have, have lost relatives because we're talking tens of thousands of people dead and missing now. Um, there's a general mobilisation of the aid groups within the country, so a lot of those people are being coordinated, through, particularly through the Syrian Arab Red Crescent, in Aleppo in particular, and as I say, there's a block for the for the physical aid going in, into northwest Italy. But in Aleppo in particular, there's a, there's been a big mobilisation of Syrian volunteers. The Syrian Trust for Development have sent all their volunteers up there to help. Of course, for you know moving the rubble, when you've got big buildings collapse, it does need a lot of equipment and, and expertise and so on, and that's why the the overseas groups, um, particularly Iran and China and Russia, have been doing some very good work there, but there, there are large numbers of Syrian volunteers mobilised to help there too. And there's a lot of video coming out of it. It's just that the Western media doesn't show this. It's a typical sort of thing. They don't show the media on the on the Russian, on the Iranian, on the Venezuelan, on the Cuban, on the Syrian side these days. That's, that's what's happened to our media. Finally, Tim, how are... Donations getting through from Australia. There's been a lot of confusion. There was, there has been some money sent by the government, but they haven't announced to whom they're sending it. And the problem is, as I say, in the past, historically, in the last decade, they have been sending it to these occupied, shrinking occupied areas. I mean, they're they're only about six percent of the Syrian population are now living in the areas that are actually exclusively controlled by militia backed by by NATO. And, and the same applied really to the to the trade union groups until recently. That is to say, Afida and the trade unions were sending money through to some of these groups like Islamic Relief Australia, which were exclusively linked to the to the Al Qaeda groups. That's changed just recently. I, I, I believe their attention's been drawn to this fact, and so now, the, and also to the fact that the U.S. has temporarily lifted the the ban on sending money to any. Syrian-linked organisation. So now 
there is on the part of trade unions in Australia a, an appeal which is sending money to the Syrian Red Crescent, which has a bank account in Beirut, which I believe is functioning. And there's also a regional Arab Confederation of Trade Unions, which has a bank account in Egypt, as I mentioned. So myself and Hands Off Syria are spreading information now to provide details of those bank accounts. There are some church groups and some other groups there, but the Red Crescent and the the International Confederation of Arab Trade Unions, they are the two that will guarantee the money will go to the bulk, more than 90% of the Syrians, rather than be captured by these um, armed groups that NATO has supported in, in Syria. People want to send donations to Syrians that, will, that, that they want assurance that they will get to the bulk of the Syrians. Um, they should look up the Syrian Arab Red Crescent. That's the most uh, reliable one. They have a bank account in Beirut. The details were starting to circulate on the internet. The Syrian Arab Red Crescent with a bank account in Beirut, that money will get to the vast majority of Syrians. Thank you, Tim. Welcome, Jan. Dr. Tim Anderson, representing the group Hands Off Syria. 3CR is radical radio, and that means more than just alternative current affairs and political coverage. We're radical because we're an independent media outlet, owned and operated by the community. We're radical because we give communities the control of their own shows, with their own music, in their own languages. We're radical because we provide a media platform for communities to build their own power to create social change. Become a subscriber and support Radical Radio. Call us on 03 9419 or subscribe online at 3cr.org au forward slash subscribe. Join us for the upcoming public forum, Sovereignty, Treaty and First Nations Justice, hosted by Green Left on Monday, February 20th at 6.30pm at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. With the upcoming referendum on Voice to Parliament, discussion about the best ways to fight for Shreedy, Sovereignty and First Nations justice have been growing. The massive Invasion Day protests of tens of thousands of people across the country is another sign of the growing movement for First Nations justice. Hear from two long-standing First Nations activists, Uncle Gary Murray and Lydia Forp, about their views on how to advance treaty, sovereignty and justice for First Nations people and their views on the current discussion about voice to Parliament. 6.30pm, Monday, February 20th, at the Drill Hall on 506 Elizabeth Street. Green Left is a free CR supporter. Today... 14th of February, organisers of the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal and their supporters will serve a citation for contempt on the corporate offices of Raytheon in Arlington, Virginia. Yesterday I spoke with one of those involved with the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal, Cathy Kelly, and asked her when it all began. Well, the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal is scheduled for November, beginning November 10th. In the United States, we're busily pouring hours into collecting evidence of war crimes having been committed by the major weapon manufacturers that we're calling the defendants in this case. 
And this is a people's tribunal. It's not, it wouldn't pass muster in a court of law, quite honestly. But we think it's very, very important to hold Boeing and Lockheed Martin and uh, Raytheon United Technologies and General Atomics accountable for the enormous suffering and damage, devastation that they've inflicted on other countries through their very murderous products. A subpoena was issued to each of these corporations um, back in November. There was no response. And so our friends are going to go with a contempt citation to the Raytheon Corporation in Washington, D.C., and they'll carry empty cartons to symbolize that these ought to be filled with the documents that they had requested from Raytheon. And Raytheon would be in contempt because now the subpoena has expired and there's never been any response. And then from there, they'll go to the Pentagon. Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin, formerly on the board of directors for Raytheon and formerly before that part of the United States military, uh, he will be given a subpoena to testify. Then we're also issuing those kinds of subpoenas to various U.S. elected officials. So many people across the United States will be participating in this action in various cities out in San Diego, going to General Atomics, which manufactures drones, and then in Syracuse and in uh, Asheville, North Carolina, where Raytheon is building a new facility. Also in uh, New York City, where Lockheed Martin has a, an office. So we, we want to continue a momentum by holding monthly events building up to the November War Crimes Tribunal. What sort of reactions do you believe these people are going to receive when they go to these various places on the 14th? Well, um, when they delivered the subpoenas to the four uh, corporations, they were definitely given a cold shoulder. Um, Boeing did send down a representative to talk with people in the lobby. The others um, wouldn't even acknowledge that the offices were inside the building used the theme, melt your cold, cold hearts, but I think people will generally get a cold shoulder and no uh, acknowledgement whatsoever. Um, but that shouldn't deter us. You know, part of our work will be to gather video testimony from people who have survived what we are um, alleging could be war crimes. And uh, some of those people are people who were maimed or bereaved or orphaned, displaced by attacks, and their voices ought to be heard. So we'll take video testimony of people who were victims, and then we've also already assembled quite a lot of video testimony from uh, people who were part of the U.S. military or our military analysts or geopolitical analysts. We, we think we'll have a package of video testimony to present in a series of online successive tribunal events that would be very, very convincing. And then we've got a, a jury of very respectable panel members, and that's we're still selecting some of them. And then the idea is that they would write a report and make recommendations. And where are these people 
who you're going to make the videos of? Going to be talking to people from Afghanistan, Iraq, some who are in diaspora. They've fled those countries. Uh, Gaza occupied Palestinian territories. The people in Lebanon and Somalia probably going to include Ukraine, but we haven't worked that out yet. But we're, we're soliciting that testimony now. And, you know, I, I myself have been in Afghanistan and Gaza and Iraq and Lebanon through very, very intense periods of bombing. And so I'm very, very interested to try to connect with people who were civilians who are, you know, they didn't have blue passports. They couldn't leave. They were still trapped. And, um, I'm hopeful that the testimony will be forthcoming. Well, you'll say you're going to do that monthly. Have you got March worked out? For the month of March, we, Earth Day is happening. You know, Earth Day is in April, forgive me. Um, we're, we're thinking about April, the, um, time of April 15th, which is considered tax day in the United States leading up to Earth Day and there are our events planned then. Um, and for March, I don't think we've landed on where we'll specifically focus our energies for March, but we'll, we'll definitely be doing a, an event in March. It's a lot of work, Kathy. How many people have you got working with you? Well, we're so pleased to have student researchers. You know, we put up posters with tabs that people could tear off and get in touch, and we now have four really talented and uh, dedicated student researchers, and we also have um, about four other people who have been active in the peace movement for a long time assisting with the research. And then Nick Mottern, Brad Wolf, Sally Al-Ghazali, and I meet monthly with three lawyers. Brad himself is a former prosecutor, Brad Wolf. And uh, so he's very good at kind of guiding us through how to adhere to prosecutorial principles, basically. And he conducts a lot of the interviews. Sally Al-Ghazali, I met when she was eight years old in Iraq during the shock and awe bombing. She is, is now a graduate of law school here in the United States, and she's been just indispensable on our team. And Nick Mottern has been documenting the abuses of drone warfare for um, well over a decade. So we four are kind of a, a team, and then we're advised by Colonel Ann Wright, retired Army Colonel Ann Wright, who was resigned from her position with the State Department as a diplomat because of the invasion of Iraq, and then Marjorie Cohn, who's a, a noted human rights and international law scholar, and Bill Quigley, who is the lawyer who has defended many, many of the anti-war activists who've engaged in civil disobedience in this country. Well, you're basing your tribunal on an earlier one, the Russell Tribunal. How did that go? Well, that one was, a, I think, a very important time for gathering people from many different disciplines, academics, poets, authors of novels. Sartre was there, um, Jean-Paul Sartre. There were many people that came together. I think you know they admired Bertrand Russell intensely, and they wanted to say that the Vietnam War was an illegal war and ought to be condemned. And so they 
I think we're a, a seminal group in demonstrating that even if the political leadership of various countries wouldn't take action, civilians would still have a, a responsibility to be accountable. So that was one tribunal. Of course, the Nuremberg Tribunal also created many documents. and They never did focus their attention on the United States for uh, firebombings of Dresden or the bombing of Tokyo and Hiroshima and Nagasaki being the site of the usage of atomic bombs. Uh, they focused all of their energy on, on Germany, but that did show the willingness uh, of people to engage in a, a, a trial. And then there have been many tribunals since then as well. There was a tribunal focused on, on Israel for its abuses of Palestinians. And in fact, there's one going on right now that is focused on uh, the way that sanctions have been used against various countries. Right at this moment with the earthquake affecting the people in northern Syria, the fact that the U.S. has these blockade sanctions against aid coming in, they've only just recently lifted that a little mm. bit, and they've only lifted it for six months, humanitarian aid. Appetite for using raw power, whether it's economic warfare or military warfare, shown by the elites in the U.S. military-industrial media congressional complex is just insatiable. It's very troubling, and we have to try to hold them accountable and, in my belief, renounce all war. Now, the places, have you got the media with you? Oh, well, you know, we've put out press releases far and wide, but uh, it's almost certain that mainstream media will not give this even a... Uh, a nod or a, but we will uh, get alternative media and we'll take our own videos and pictures and put them out um, to many, many different websites. The word will go around. Good luck, Kathy. And I just want to finish with two things that might seem to be going connected, but there's balloons flying over Northern America, Canada, and there's an article by Seymour Hirsch. You've sort of put those two together, haven't you? Well, it's curious to me that there is a great deal of speculation, not a whole lot of certainty about the pattern, really, of unidentified flying objects going over the United States. I mean, this isn't entirely new, and yet there is a full throttle, full course media attentiveness to the reality that these balloons have been sighted and some have been shot down. But there is just not even a hint of acknowledgement in the mainstream media of a report that Seymour Hirsch wrote, which he claims that he has a source, an unnamed source, who has verified to him that it was the United States that decided to send Navy divers with uh, remote-controlled detonation devices to blow up the Nord Stream pipeline, and um, you know it's a, it's an interesting report to read because actually President Biden himself had publicly said that the United States did not want that pipeline to continue, and you know there's been a lot of allegation that this, the Russians 
blew it up. But, you know, I think probably the European Union will start to do more investigative digging to figure out is there some credibility to Seymour Hersh's report. And it ought to be remembered that the Abu Ghraib scandal was uh, disclosed by Seymour Hersh and that uh, when the Israelis were claiming that their underground nuclear reactor was a salination plant, uh, Seymour Hersh did some of the deep digging that proved that, in fact, the Israelis had created thermonuclear weapons in this underground plant in Demona. So he's not someone to be dismissed. He's uh, somebody who has been printed in New York, Times articles in the past, but right now he printed his article on Substack. You know, he, he himself knows that mainstream media just is not likely to accept his research. Well, we'll keep in touch, Kathy, and I guess reiterate good luck. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jen. And many, many thanks to Kathy Kelly today talking about the Merchants of Death War Crimes Tribunal. Did you know that 3CR received its community radio licence in 1976? Our application was successful because of our diverse and engaged community membership. Subscribers are at the heart of our station and we really need you to be active and paid up in 2023. Become a 3CR subscriber today. Call 039419 or subscribe online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Live it up at this year's National Sustainable Living Festival, showcasing solutions to the ecological challenges of our times. Join the sustainability movement for a month of workshops, talks, demonstrations, artworks, exhibitions, films and live performances. Featuring the great local picnic at Royal Botanic Gardens for a big green day out with ABC Gardening Australia's Costa Georgiatis. Full program online, slf.org.au. The National Sustainable Living Festival is a 3CR supporter. This summer, tune into 3CR's Disability Day broadcast, Rest is Survival. 12 hours of programs by people with disabilities. Conversations about rest as a necessity for survival, the ways disabled people are habitually denied both rest and income, reflections on disabled rest and joy, disabled indigenous anti-capitalist features, and much more. All the audio is available to listen back at your leisure at 3cr.org.au forward slash Disability Day 2022 or find the podcast by searching 3CR's Radical Radio on your favourite podcast app. Next on Tuesday Home Time, Bob Phelps, the Executive Officer of Gene Ethics Network and I've got a feeling, Bob, that it's about this time of year, many years ago, that Gene Ethics was founded. Oh, that's true, yes, 1988. Uh, so that means we're in our coming up for 35 years, I guess. Can you remember what the primary issues were at that time? 
Well, they mostly focused on release of genetically engineered organisms into the environment, and uh, there were many, many proposals at that point, most of which never materialized. Monsanto especially, the uh, American corporation that's, that was into uh, agricultural chemicals and genetically manipulated organisms, uh, was the main leader. It had a, a narrative that said, you know, everything in agriculture is going to become genetically engineered and it's going to be fantastic. We're going to produce all sorts of new things, uh, drought tolerance, nitrogen fixation in grains, which of course is a big problem because if you can't fix nitrogen as you do in uh, beans and other uh, peas and other crop plants, then you've got to apply a huge amount of fertilizer, which runs off into the environment, particularly waterways, and creates havoc. They made all these claims about um, new genetically engineered plants, but in the end, what we got was, of course, the crops that were resistant to being sprayed with Roundup. So you could spray more often and at higher doses with your herbicide to kill every plant in sight except for the crop plant, and that remains the dominant trait even today, of the genetically manipulated crops, mainly uh, soybean, corn, canola, cotton, and in the USA, sugar beet. So the farmers can spray more, and of course they end up getting uh, Roundup tolerant weeds, which are um, harder to manage, and Roundup, of course, has turned out to be a human carcinogen as well. Monsanto was sold off for a very big um, sum to to Bayer a number of years ago, so Bayer is now struggling with all the residual claims against the Monsanto company for exposure to Roundup and also um, terrible impacts on the environment from PCBs, a very persistent chemical which um, was widely used in all sorts of industrial systems. Bayer is having to pay a lot of local governments, schools and various other institutions for the damage that that particular chemical did as well. So it's turned out uh, to be not the bonanza, the genetic manipulation bonanza that was promised, but to be more chemical residues in the food and in our environment as a result of these innovations. Now, of course, the new genome editing tools which were invented in 2012, have come on the scene. They're being deregulated, all the same promises for drought and salt tolerance and nitrogen fixation and grain and a number of other wild claims are being made for this new crop of uh, plants as well. So that was our theme for a very long time. But of course, the new genome editing means that you can uh, modify the genetic makeup of any living organism, whether it's a human being, an animal, plant, or a microorganism. So it's a very different scene from 35 years ago when it was a new 20th century technology making all sorts of huge claims that it couldn't deliver on. There's a third international summit on human genome editing coming up very soon. What do you believe that will achieve? Well, it might um, give more impetus to the uh, idea that human beings are among those organisms that uh, should be genetically engineered and have their genomes edited 
so that they can be healthier and more suitable. It's being promoted, of course, as um, having the potential to cure or prevent certain diseases. There's a lot of enthusiasm among uh, genetic scientists for humans to be, um, or for the law to allow human genetic engineering uh, to take place. There's already a lot of work going on, of course, in gene therapy in laboratories. Uh, that's to say the treatment of individual human beings with health problems. But the real debate and the real big issue is whether or not they should be allowed to use these new techniques and technologies to modify human beings so that all future generations will also carry the genes that they insert into the new class of uh, biotech people. How many countries are involved in research for this? Well, very many, uh, although it tends to be the um, highly industrialised countries and the military is also very involved as well, uh, the US military in particular. But potential for um, improving the performance of soldiers in the battlefield, for instance, is of great interest to some governments and countries. And I know that China now is um, in the lead on this, along with the USA and uh, some European countries. Uh, England is about to... Um, consider deregulating a lot of uh, human genetic engineering. So there will be a major debate during this third international summit on human genome editing, which will be in London in, uh, next month. We're at the moment trying to organise uh, an international coalition of citizens to push back against any changes to the laws on the inheritance of uh, these genetic changes that are proposed. Just to be clear, Genetic engineering can be used on individuals to try to understand and improve their health. Those changes wouldn't be passed on to future generations. And then there's the heritable, the germline changes that the IVF industry and many scientists are proposing, which would make changes to the human gene pool that would be passed on to all future generations. This is something that's not in the public interest and really has a very dark history if we just think back to the eugenics of the uh, middle 19th century to the middle of the 20th century and what was done to humans in the names, name of eugenics. We should be warned that fiddling around with the genetic makeup of people and uh, creating human beings that are going to carry genes that we predetermine would be uh, beneficial, like higher intelligence or longer life span or um, other kinds of super well-being, as the transhumanists call it, that these are um, a treacherous path to follow. And indeed, something like 70 countries around the world already have laws and treaties in which they uh, prohibit the um, germline gene manipulation of human beings but of course the scientific community and some governments are um, inclined now to think that or forget history forget the horrible uh, impacts of the eugenics movement get on with making human beings more perfect more in our image and likeness it just i think shows the hubris of uh, some scientists that uh, 
they think that they can get away with doing this and uh, that somehow it all will work out well in the end. Of course, there are some inducements like Nobel Prizes also hanging about for scientists that um, incline them to do things that are not necessarily um, going to please the uh, vast majority of human beings. Well, are the voices of scientists who are opposing this heard? Not very much, and in fact, um, this is coming up at the moment because a group of Australian academics based in Canberra and uh, out of uh, Tasmania as well, in 2021, they held a, um, a so-called citizen's jury about human genome editing in Canberra. And one of the noticeable things was that um, after it was over, the participants, the ordinary citizens who had been invited to come and consider what the various uses of human genetic engineering might be in the future, around about half of them were very dissatisfied with the information that they'd been given by the panel of experts that were um, at the meeting. We've now entered into correspondence with the organisers of that particular citizen's jury because they are now planning to uh, create a global assembly of 100 citizens in Athens run along the same lines. And what they're claiming is that, oh, all of the experts really agree that human genetic engineering is okay and uh, we're having a hard time finding anybody who opposes it. Well, on the basis that um, at least 70 countries have already had this debate and have got laws saying you can't do this, surely they can't seriously argue that uh, there's nobody to discuss this. They say, oh, you know, nobody's against the technology, so um, the people that we get um, who are publishing in favour of going ahead are the only people we can find and we're in debate with them at the moment about the claims that they make in the final report of that citizen's jury that they held in 2021 because, uh, as I said, they're now planning to go to Athens and hold a global assembly. Their plans include making representations to the United Nations World Health Organization and a range of other very influential global organizations as a result of this assembly that they propose to hold, you can just see that the whole thing is being lined up again to come out with recommendations saying, yes, it's okay, you can do the science, provided the regulations are there. But the problem is that regulations routinely fail, particularly in Australia. What we see is that uh, the so-called regulations really don't exist on anything to do with um, health research and in this particular case on human genome editing. The National Health and Medical Research Council is in charge of all that research and clinical practice. They're basically a funder, a funding organization that spends the government's uh, health budget. The rest of it runs on guidelines, not anything that you would call real regulation where uh, you monitor what's going on and you uh, have some power to require people to abide by the rules. And so we see that a lot of research and activity within the IVF industry and even within things like um, cosmetic surgery, uh, we've seen huge problems. The, these things are 
you know, doctors that do cosmetic surgery, for instance, are not even required to be uh, surgeons to be accredited. The debate around that, we just need better regulation, but we shouldn't rely on regulation because they frequently fail. They're designed to serve the industries that they regulate. Uh, we see that in, in the case of um, chemicals, industrial and agricultural chemicals. The industry pays for the regulator to do their job. Same with the Food Stands Australia New Zealand. They do a very poor job of regulating the food supply because they're um, compromised by the global ultra-processed food industries, so on and so on. You know, the people who pay the price call the tune and so it is with regulators as well. In the case of human genetic engineering, uh, we just need stronger laws in place to say no and not be going along with this idea that uh, you can sound out public opinion by getting a panel of people together, convincing them that it's all okay, and then publishing their results as though they somehow represented the whole community. That process, I think, is, is quite a farce, and it's clearly designed to get the result that the uh, proponents of new technologies and new processes want to get uh, so that they can get um, a tick and get a go-ahead for what they want to do. Bob, has this genome editing already been tried out on non-human animals? Uh, yeah, various um, research is being done, and I suppose the most high profile of that is uh, by um, an Australian researcher in um, Davis in California who has been working with cattle, and her project uh, was to remove the horns from cattle genetically. The thing was that it, it appeared to be a success and yeah, it was all good to go and indeed there were even uh, samples in Australia uh, that were going to be rolled out. But coincidentally, American regulators took a look at the science and what had been done and the animals that were proposed for release uh, into agricultural systems and found, in fact, that as well as the changes that had been made to give these animals or to remove from these animals their horns so that uh, they would be easier to work with and wouldn't harm each other, that uh, random other genes for antibiotic resistance and a variety of other characteristics had gone along with the genetic processes, the gene editing that had been done, and that they were not fit for purpose at all. And so their release was prohibited I mean, the other thing to say about that is that there are already breeds of cattle that don't have horns. It would be perfectly possible to start um, promoting them and to do um, conventional breeding to bring that genetic characteristic into other breeds of cattle as well. If you really want to get rid of horns without having to dehorn cattle, cattle which is a rather cruel and nasty business and of course animal welfare and rights people have been arguing against that for a long time so it was industry's idea that oh we'll just tweak the genes we'll get rid of the horns and uh, it'll all be a-okay because the animals being born won't have horns in the first place this is the the kind of thinking behind all of these uh, changes that are being made whether they're in humans animals or plants that uh, somehow scientists can do better than nature 
and it's uh, really, it's hubris of the worst kind. I want to go back to what you were talking about right at the beginning, Bob. You were talking about chemical residue in food. There's a big problem there, isn't there? Well, there is, um, because, um, for instance, in Australia, there are some 11,000 agricultural chemicals, mostly herbicides, but also pesticides, fungicides, and a whole variety of other chemicals that are now put on um, seed and sprayed on plants, which leave residues. And, of course, the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority approves the use of those chemicals on various plants individually. They, they don't consider the interactional effects. They don't really, in a serious way, consider what residues are going to be left behind. And the result of that, for instance, is that when a new agricultural chemical is introduced, the uh, companies and the regulator consider oh, how much of this chemical will we need to spray on these crops in order to get the effect that we want, whether it's um, plants that grow more quickly or organisms in the soil that are going to be controlled or um, crop plants that can resist being sprayed with more herbicide more often. And the result is that you uh, do end up with more chemicals and their interactional effects and their cumulative effects are never considered by the Pesticides and Veterinary Medicines Authority. They then say, okay, we're going to use this amount of chemical in order to do this job in industrial agriculture. And okay, now we'll take that information over to Food Standards Australia New Zealand who will then set a maximum residue level for the residues. The use of the chemical comes first and the safety considerations come much later. And uh, as a result, we get um, routinely get synthetic chemical residues in the food supply. An interesting bit of research just came out a couple of weeks ago uh, from the USA, something like 80% of uh, Americans appear to have the residues of glyphosate, which is the Roundup herbicide, in their urine. What um, researchers from the National Institutes of Health and some other very top people have found is that these residues appear to leave markers for the induction of cancers, which of course is what... Uh, People have been arguing about non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and why they've been suing Monsanto for tens of millions of dollars for the last five or seven years, and some of them being very successful indeed. Bayer has now uh, set aside $11 billion to try to pay off the more than 100,000 people who are making claims, but it's not really working out for the company at this point. Although the residues in human urine in Australia are much lower and mostly uh, are people who actually directly use the chemicals, there are still public health and safety issues from the chemical cocktail, the 11,000 chemicals, veterinary and agricultural chemicals that are registered for use in Australia. The other problematic thing in our own community here is that uh, the monitoring of farm chemicals is really pathetically weak. Fresh food markets pretty much self-regulate the testing for synthetic chemical residues 
in the food supply. They do that themselves. And, of course, any state or federal health authority or, indeed, Food Standards Australia New Zealand, which doesn't do any testing itself but might trigger some screening of samples that are submitted annually, the growers and the industry get uh, plenty of notice that samples are going to be taken and uh, it's pretty easy to organise it so that you're within the limits when your samples and so on are taken. The whole system really is pretty much self-regulation. I think that we need a a serious tightening up here in Australia of uh, oversight on chemicals and we need much, much stronger and more rigorous regulation as well so that um, our regulators can't get away with fudging it with just looking at each individual chemical. We need to, particularly where the chemicals are actually mixed as a tank mix for application because one won't work on its own, we need to be saying, well, you need to consider all of the chemicals and what their interactions with each other are as far as public health and safety and the health of animals on farms are concerned and what is the cumulative effect of all of these chemicals being in the human food supply. Certainly, uh, each one at what appear to be low levels, but when you think about how many there might be in a particular food, a fresh fruit or vegetable, then the answer really is go organic because if you want to avoid those chemical residues, one step that you can take. Yes, the food appears to be a bit more expensive, although at the moment uh, with um, supply chain disruption going on in the food supply throughout Australia, in fact the prices are not that different. Going organic is a very, very good idea from the point of view of avoiding chemical residues. Well, when you're talking about chemical residues, one crop is cotton, especially GM cotton, and looking at what's happening in the Northern Territory with illegal land clearing. There's been an issue with land clearing in many places now, isn't there, illegal land clearing? Yes, well, uh, that's, that's true. Of course, it's a big problem in the north generally, in Queensland and Northern Territory, and in the north of Western Australia. The law is pretty weak on these things anyway. Uh, we do have the Environment Protection and Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is a federal act. In the case of the Northern Territory at the moment, the Federal Environment Department under Tanya Plibersek is investigating the situation of the clearing of some very fragile and biologically important areas in the Northern Territory which are being turned over to cotton. And I think the thing to say there is that virtually 100% of all cotton grown in Australia is genetically manipulated, most of it to be tolerant of being sprayed with Roundup or the um, Bayer product Liberty, which is uh, glufosinate as opposed to glyphosate, which is the Roundup uh, active ingredient. But these crops do resist being sprayed with these chemicals. Uh, Dicamba is another chemical that's uh, a herbicide that's um, recently a cotton was approved, which is dicamba tolerant. That's a new ball game as well because spray drift uh, from cotton in particular, but also onto cotton from other 
adjacent farms is now creating a huge conflict within the farming community. Dicamba in particular uh, has proven to be very prone to spray drift. It will drift a very, very long way, land on other crops, either from or to cotton, then you're in, in serious trouble with your um, crop being destroyed. So there's a debate there. So we've got chemical residues spraying from the air and new areas which are biologically diverse, fragile, should be protected areas in national parks now being appropriated particularly by the cotton industry which is a small but very valuable industry. We just need stronger regulation again. <laughs> Regulations really don't work because again you've got governments compromised by the fact that they want to produce these products and export them to have uh, money coming into the country. Uh, most of our cotton is exported. We just need to start thinking very, very seriously about what it costs to produce these uh, products. You know, the National Farmers Federation has got this uh, rather quaint plan that by 2030, Australian agriculture is going to be worth $100 billion a year, uh, mostly in exports. But the thing is that they never count the environmental or other costs like the input costs of all these chemicals that are being used, which at the moment are in excess of $5 billion a year, just for the chemical bill into the pockets of the transnational agrochemical uh, seed and chemical companies who are also doing the genetic manipulation. This is a gravy train for them. Our regulators are compromised and it means that new areas of land which should be left untouched are being opened up and uh, destroyed. For why? To meet this target of $100 billion of production per annum, uh, most of it for export from broadacre cotton, grains, particularly uh, wheat and canola and so on, to be sent overseas. For what purpose? Well, our canola, for instance, goes to Europe because it's not genetically engineered and uh, in Europe it's used as animal feed and to make biofuels so that the Europeans can meet their targets for running their cars uh, on less petrol. So it comes with the trappings of being more environmentally friendly when in fact it's um, in places like Northern Territory and right across the north of Australia really destroying First Nations lands which should be left untouched. These are lands that are critical to uh, the identity and uh, lifestyle of, of Indigenous Australians. They're environments that harbour biodiversity, much of it being lost through extinctions that should be left alone and not exploited by industrial agriculture. Just finally, Bob, and if you can briefly, a field trial of a GM weed... That sounds disturbing to me. Oh, yes, you're talking about perennial ryegrass. That's right, yes. Um, there's a, the Office of Gene Technology Regulator is currently considering field trials in Australia of um, perennial ryegrass, which um, is great for growing in pastures and lawns and is widely used around Australia. But the thing about this particular grass is that it's also a very ag aggressive and invasive weed. 
particularly in natural environments, the trait that they want to uh, put into the into this plant is that it produces more energy when it's when it's eaten by um, animals on farms. But of course, as a weed, it can be eaten by any animal out there environment. There doesn't seem to have been any serious research at all about what it would mean to make these ryegrasses, which are a a persistent weed which requires management in natural environments where it invades and tends to take over in many, many parts of Australia already. So to make it more fit to survive, to make it more suitable for animals to eat and to spread further in the environment just seems like a crazy idea. Um, It's been field trialled in the USA and New Zealand already those trials seem to have been a failure, and now it's coming to Australia. Genethics uh, has told the Office of Gene Technology Regulator to reject the application for the field trials, which, if it were successful, would almost inevitably lead on to widespread commercial use as well, to leave those field trials alone, to say no to this application. The OGTR is still considering its position, although in its um, risk assessment and risk management plan on which we commented, it was clear that the regulator is inclined to agree to the field trials because they say they'll be contained. Where the pollen and seed will go from those trials and how they'll contain it, very unclear, and we just think they should say no. But, of course, like all of the regulators, they're compromised by the industry and uh, we can expect that they probably will say yes. It's very disappointing uh, that um, our governments don't make regulation actually work, and uh, I just think that the public should get up in arms about the fact that most regulation is weak and industry-dominated, and it's about time we had um, governments standing up for the public interests, not the uh, industry interests. Good eye, Bob. Well, thank you once again. Pleasure to be here. Thanks very much, Jan. Dreesier needs members to survive. By becoming a subscriber, you're helping us to remain fiercely independent and free of commercials and corporate influence. Are you a paid-up subscriber? It's just $40 concession, $80 waged, $150 for a band or organisation and $300 solidarity. Great value for 24-7 community-owned and community-controlled media. Please become a subscriber member today. Call the station on 03-9419-8377 or sign up online at 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe. Festival is back in 2023 with two days of summer fun, Saturday 18th and Sunday 19th of February. Saturday kicks off with a celebration of First Peoples artists including Christine Arnu, Jem Cassadaly, Dean Brady and more. On Sunday, the party takes to the St Kilda streets with hoodoo gurus, Yothu Yindi, Confidence Man and heaps more. Free and all ages, see the program at stkildafestival.com.au. St Kilda Festival is a 3CR supporter.
On the program last week, Dr. Alison Bronowski, former diplomat, author and academic, spoke about the fundamental faults of AUKUS being exposed in Canberra and Washington. Continuing with Alison's interview, I pointed out that there are other areas relating to war which will be focused on earlier this year. And in March, it's the 20th anniversary of the Gulf War and that many people have either forgotten or didn't know about the first Gulf War, the first war against the people of Iraq. Yeah, probably. In fact, a 20-year-old in Australia could be excused for not knowing anything about that. What actually happened, as you will remember, in the first Gulf War, there was a set-up stitched up by George H.W. Bush against Iraq, who they encouraged surreptitiously to attack Kuwait, giving the United States an opportunity to attack back against a tiny force that was easily done. And they got UN Security Council approval for it because the setup looked like aggression against Kuwait by Saddam Hussein. Of course, if the UN Security Council approves that it's a case of aggression, then uh, the war becomes legal in international terms. And so Bob Hawke's commitment of a, of a small Australian force to join that uh, was actually legal. And that happened, and it was quickly over. And George H.W. Bush, to his credit, having been uh, a former foreign minister, understood that the legality of hot pursuit did not apply. So the United States and its allies did not pursue uh, Saddam Hussein back into Iraq, although numerous bombings, punitive bombings, took place under successive presidents. But the second Iraq war, as we call it, or some people's second Gulf War, was organized by his son, George W. Bush, who said, Saddam Hussein tried to kill my daddy, which has never been proved. That was one of the reasons why he was motivated to pursue Saddam Hussein. What was then done, as people do remember, was that the reasons for war were spurious. The Americans claimed to have evidence that Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction because they knew very well that when Iraq was fighting Iran, the United States had supplied them with the precursors for chemical weapons and possibly even biological as well. And they knew that Saddam Hussein had them because they kept the receipts that some people said. But in fact, they were either useless or had been destroyed by 2003 when the United States on a lie with its allies, including Australia, invaded Iraq. And the result of that was everything that you've seen since then, complete chaos and destruction in Iraq, the spread into Syria, and so on. The fact that Australia was involved in all of that, unquestioningly involved in all of that, on a lie by our allies, is something that should haunt Australian governments to this day. And, of course, no legitimate inquiry into all of that. 
No, none. In the United Kingdom, uh, in 2009, there was such disquiet about what had happened in Iraq, what's happening in Iraq, the British government set up what became known as the Chilcot Inquiry, and Sir John Chilcot studied this matter for years and eventually reported in 2016. And the Chilcot report was something that Australia never emulated. And my organization, Australians for War Powers Reform, was originally set up to demand that Australia have a similar inquiry and to get into how Australia got involved in that war. What happened at the time, which was became notorious, was that Sir Richard Dearlove, the British head of MI6, said privately, and it was late, later leaked, that the United States had stitched up the facts around the policy. That was what an Australian inquiry, I believe, would also have found if we'd been allowed to have one. That is, that government would have to admit that we had a policy of invading Iraq, sure, and the facts, that is, allegations of of material breach of UN Security Council resolutions and accusations that uh, Saddam Hussein had chemical and or biological and or nuclear weapons were also true, that would have been revealed to be false. And so we never got such an inquiry because it would have been extremely embarrassing for Australian governments to admit that, that was the case. And that's where another aspect of ANZUS comes in, you see. We are not in control of our alliance. The United States is. Australia doesn't dare to say or do anything that would offend the United States. What actually came out of that Chilcot inquiry? What came out of it were demands that the United Kingdom change the way it goes to war for years. Both houses of the UK Parliament tried to legislate the convention. That is, the convention says that the government of the day should move a motion, at least in, in the lower house, to say we propose to do X, Y, Z in a military way against some other country. Now, that is the convention, but a convention doesn't have to be abided by. So for years, in both houses of the British Parliament, they have been trying to pass a law that would require government to do that. Up to now, that has not succeeded. So in practice, what's happened is that the convention has been applied, but only when it suited the government. So for instance, in 2013, David Cameron proposed a military assault on Syria, and he put that to the parliament, and it was rejected in the lower house. And he never made that mistake again, nor did his successor, Theresa May, who concocted an emergency as an excuse for an attack on Syria in 2018. I might add that uh, Tony Blair, in 2004, abided by the convention and took a motion for war against Iraq to the lower house, and it was passed. That's how Britain justified its invasion 
of Iraq. And I've been speaking with Dr. Alison Royalski. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.